Welcome to Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm your host, Joe Ramsey, Zooming with you live here from Dorchester, Massachusetts, as we enter our third month of Shelter in Place here, just south of Boston. Our show today, Shelter and Solidarity number five, focuses on immigrant, immigrant struggles for justice during and beyond the COVID-19 pandemic. Everyone who lives in the USA today, if not descended directly from indigenous people, is of course, strictly speaking, either an immigrant, descendants of immigrants, or descendants of those who have been enslaved by settlers and immigrants of this continent. And yet through our modern US history, Recent immigrants, and particularly those from Latin America, Asia, and Africa, have become frequent targets. Frequent targets, even as they, on so many levels, remain absolutely, absolutely essential to this country, to whether in the form of the work they provide to make the society function, the culture and community contributions, small businesses, and other meaningful contributions they make to this society. As the rise of the Trump regime has made painfully clear and undeniable, anti-immigrant, immigrant restrictionist views and policies, as well as outright dehumanization is all too common when it comes to recent immigrants to the United States. The COVID-19 moment has shed a fresh and ugly light on this long-standing inequity and mistreatment, as well as compounded the material problems, inequities and injustice in, in and injustices, excuse me, faced by so many of our immigrant brothers and sisters. Whether it's people moving across geographic barriers from place to place, fleeing or seeking, as people rounded up for no crime at all and locked in jails and prisons for the simple crime of being born elsewhere, as workers performing some of the most essential labor in this society at often exploitative, super exploitative rates of pay, and as broad, broadly as community members denied social equality with their fellow residents. Our first guest today, Avi Chomsky, will be helping us to place this uh, immediate COVID moment in a broader historical context while also helping us trace some of the battle lines and flashpoints of suffering, struggle, solidarity, and uh, struggle for justice that are on our landscape right now. Avi Chomsky, is professor of history at Salem State University. She's the author of several books, including two that I have read, Undocumented, and also They Take Our Jobs, and 20 Other Myths About Immigration. Uh, Avi, thank you so much for being here today on Shelter and Solidarity. Actually, I'm not hearing you. Make sure you're uh, unmuted. Let's try that okay. again. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me, Joe. It's great to be here. Good to see you. It's good to see you too. Uh, yeah, sorry about the technical uh, difficulties today. Uh, hopefully we'll, we'll smooth those out as we go. Uh, so Avi, uh, I, I'd like to put two questions to you to begin, and we will be bringing in a number of other voices shortly. But if I could give you two questions to start, I mean, as you, a scholar and activist on many issues, including immigrant justice issues, uh, reflect on this COVID situation, what seem to you to be the flashpoints that people really need to be paying attention to? Uh, and where are the battle lines kind of drawn in this particular immediate moment, whether you're thinking locally or nationally? 
Uh, actually, why don't we start there and then we can perhaps work back to the context after. Uh, yeah, where do you see the flashpoints right now that people need to be paying attention to? And where are the battle lines drawn right now, Avi, as you see it in this country? Okay, and I have 10 minutes, right? I don't get to talk for two hours. You know what? You could go five minutes and I'll give you a follow-up. Uh, keep it a little conversational uh, and uh, okay. we'll go from there. And then you'll have a chance to comment later as well. I'll see what I can do. I have a lot to say. Um, so one of the things, I mean, it seems like this pandemic has kind of ripped the veil off of many of the inequalities in our society and, and forms of exploitation that have been there all along, but have been kind of invisibilized to the majority population. Um, and so I just wanted to say one background thing about immigrants and your original comment that like all of us who are not descendants of Native Americans are the descendants of some sort of immigrants and yet now we have this anti-immigrant sentiment and I think when we um, when we think about immigrants it's almost impossible to talk about immigration without also talking about two other things which is race and economics and like we say that Trump is um, anti-immigrant and that he stokes anti-immigrant sentiment. But um, he's also made it really clear that there are good immigrants and bad immigrants and in his eyes. And this is actually something that's been true throughout U.S. history. Good immigrants are white and they are people who have a lot of money. And Trump loves white immigrants who have a lot of money. Um, Trump hates immigrants who are people of color and who don't have a lot of money. But he only hates them in order to exploit them. Um, and this is also just something that's just built really deeply into our history and our social, racial, and economic system. Um, that is, Trump knows as well as anybody else that we need immigrant workers, that he needs immigrant workers who does all the work at his hotels and golf courses. Um, uh, who is he insisting go back to work at the meat processing plants? They're immigrants. Um, but racism and um, blaming people for their poverty, especially people of color, um, is a good way to keep people poor and keep people marginalized and keep people exploited. So when we talk about anti-immigrant sentiment or anti-immigrant racism, we really need to contextualize. Um, but I mean, in a way that also answer, uh, speaks to your question about the flashpoints um, or the battle lines, because I think for many people who are not immigrants um, and people uh, that is, I would say most of the white middle and upper classes of the country prefer to go about their daily lives invisibilizing many of the inequalities, um, racial, economic, and status related. Um, but this is, the, the pandemic has just ripped the veil off of all of that. It's impossible not to see every day who are these essential workers? Um, why can't they socially distance? Um, what's happening in the meat processing plants? What's happening in the prisons? What's happening in the Walmarts? Um, who are the workers there? Um, and why is this pandemic been so racially and socioeconomically unequal? That is, in one sense, like the disease isn't racist, right? But because of the social structures of our society, it's people of color and poor people who are overwhelmingly um, being affected by this disease. And let me just say one other thing, which is that for immigrants who don't have documents, um, not only uh, can they not stay home and not socially distance, uh, 
but they're also not eligible for things like the stimulus payments and unemployment and other things that are being given out to those deserving people uh, in our society. Absolutely. Um, thank you for that recontextualization, Avi. Um, could I ask you to, to elaborate a little bit about how we've come to this point? I mean, I think you, you lay out the class and race aspect of this very clearly and sharply. Uh, I wonder if you could give us a little more, uh, within the brief frame we're in, um, the, a little more of a historical sense of how, in particular, undocumented immigrants, right, and the so-called notion of the illegal immigrant has become uh, such a, a, I don't want to say popular, but it's such a, such a targeted and kind of, um, you know, demonized group. I mean, it wasn't really until reading your book uh, on undocumented that I realized how recent in some sense that category is not to say race and class exploitation are new to the united states but but this particular form of margin inclusion exclusion simultaneous kind of action is, is actually uh, quite new as i understand could you talk a little more about about that category of undocumented mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. an undocumented worker uh in a way that brings us up to the present so the use of this concept of undocumentedness as a rationale and legitimization for marginalizing and exploiting workers is indeed new. Obviously, marginalizing and exploiting different groups of workers is not new in our history. Um, but one of the main ways that workers have been marginalized, that the, the marginalization uh, and exploitation of workers has been justified in the first half of up till up till say the 1960s has been explicitly racial. That is, there were racial exclusions on citizenship. There was racial enslavement. There um, were, uh, you know, no Mex. There was Jim Crow and uh, uh, exclusion of people of Mexican origin. Um, but acero programs, guest worker programs, all kinds of legal structures that kept immigrant workers from Mexico in particular in a marginalized position. When those structures began to come out into the open and be attacked, be challenged, and be dismantled in the 1960s, and I'm talking here about the civil rights movement, the dismantling of the Bracero guest worker program because of how exploited it was, the United Farm Workers, the Chicano movement, um, when those explicitly racial rationales for exploitation became delegitimized, and we're also talking about the Cold War period when the United States is trying to present itself to the world as the paragon of justice and, and equality and progress, um, that's when illegality and the illegalization of Mexican immigration became the prime um, legal and social justification for maintaining a subject Mexican labor force, especially in agriculture. Um, but after the 1980s, because of uh, various kinds of economic changes that I probably don't have time to get into, um, moving beyond agriculture into all of these lowest sectors of a deindustrializing economy, service sectors, cleaning, um, taking care of, uh, old people, home health workers, um, food production, food processing, and um, Walmart, all of these sectors that have been so ravaged by the coronavirus. 
Let's, I'd like to zoom in, if you could, a little bit before we bring in our next two guests on this issue of food, actually, which has been, I think, for, you know, again, when we think about it, what is essential to human life, uh, nothing can be more essential than, than perhaps food and shelter and water. Um, the food meat packing workers, meat factory workers, Tyson workers, the, the chicken, poultry, um, beef and, and pork uh, processing uh, factory workers have been in the news quite a bit, at least in, in independent media. Democracy Now! did a segment, you know, a few days ago on them. Um, and and the, the intense struggles that they're facing, the intense pressure they're under, right? The context here being that we have an administration led by Trump, right, that has actually invoked the National Defense Production Act to say that meat processing factories must stay open, um, regardless of the governor's will. Um, whereas, of course, ventilator production apparently didn't make it up the, the list of priorities enough to, to invoke that act directly. Could you talk a little bit about, and that's, I mean, one flashpoint that's been on my radar. I wonder if you have a, a perspective on, on, on what's going on there. There's been the call for meatless Mondays, targeted boycotts. Uh, I wonder if you're aware of, of in touch with some of the struggle that's going on uh, in you know, around um, food production workers, in, in, as well as perhaps other local struggles, not only food, but, uh, but frontline kind of workers here. But maybe we could start with food and then see if we can talk a little bit more uh, locally as well. Um, so I, I should say that I think meatpacking is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, there's a quote from an article by our mutual friend Steve Striffler, where he says that it's Im almost impossible uh, in the United States today to um, eat any kind of food that has not passed through the hands of a Latino worker. Um, it goes from the, the farms, uh, through the processing, through the restaurants, through the packaging, uh, every single uh, aspect of food production and delivery is done by Latino workers, um, mostly Mexican and Central American workers, um, to say nothing of the food that's imported from Latin America that, that we eat also. Um, and all of this work is frontline work in the that it's considered essential. And it's not just the meatpacking plants, but Trump is also insisting that Mexico allow the plants along the border um, that are, are doing uh, manufacturing processing, no matter what the conditions, those plants have to stay open so that manufacturers can keep coming into the United States. Um, so these are the frontline workers who are so essential and exploiting them is really essential too, because the system doesn't work our system of uh, expecting to have everything at our fingertips all the time cheaply um, so that we'll vote for Trump doesn't work without exploiting huge numbers of mostly Mexican workers. Um, and the conditions that they work under, it's, it wouldn't not in theory be impossible to create decent conditions, but we are so far from that. There's no way from yesterday to today to tomorrow that we can create decent conditions um, in the farms, in the fields, in the production plants, um, in the transport, processing, manufacturing, delivery, uh, cooking of, of all of this food. So, um, you know, I mean, I see the, the balance between what's happening in the meatpacking plants in the Midwest and what's happening in the Walmart in Worcester in terms of uh, who are the workers who are providing these essential services, how are they treated, 
and uh, what kind of recourse do they have? And just to come back to the question of illegality, um, that's a really potent resource that employers have, illegality, because it puts workers at such a disadvantage. Um, and guest worker programs really do the same thing. That is, it makes workers completely dependent on their employer and almost impossible for them to access any kind of, of recourse to protect their own health and safety. Do you see the opportunity for political organizing within the immigrant communities and beyond it in solidarity with immigrant workers? Do you see an opportunity right now for, um, you might say, offensive organizing to really raise some of these long-standing inequalities up to a higher level of struggle and, and consciousness? I mean, obviously there's a need for intense, you know, support and defensive struggles and mutual aid as, as racialized and economically exploited uh, criminalized communities come under particular threat from the conditions around COVID and lack of medical care, lack of trust to even go to a hospital uh, without fear of being deported. Do you see an opportunity for, um, I mean, what are the opportunities you see for defensive organizing right now and solidarity people can show, as well as per perhaps we might call offensive organizing or bringing uh, some of these, these long simmering battles to a, to a kind of a higher, uh, sharper place to mix metaphors, if I may. Um, well, we're seeing um, some upsurges in organizing, as we saw with the um, May Day strikes in Amazon, Target, Whole Foods, um, and the calls for boycott. So there's a direct call to consumers to support the workers' struggles. Um, and I think what I was saying earlier about the sort of ripping off the veil is definitely opening, like what's happening now is opening the eyes of many people um, to some things that perhaps they were unaware of or they just didn't pay attention to or didn't want to pay attention to. Um, I do think that it's a potent moment for organizing and mobilizing. Um, whether we do it is kind of up to us. <laughs> Um, that it's, as a historian, I always hate to try to predict the future because there's so many variables in there. But, um, but I certainly see possibilities right now. And I see, um, yeah, possibilities, I guess I can leave it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, perhaps to help us flesh out some of those possibilities and, and speak more about what is and can be done about them, I'd like to bring in our next two guests. Uh, first, we have uh, Mizue Azeki, and after that, we'll have Joseph Nevins. Uh, Mizue is the Deputy Director of the Immigrant Defense Project, uh, leading campaigns to end the police to deportation pipeline and helping to coordinate community defense against ICE raids. Uh, not, you know, so we're talking about uh, activism not only on the border, but in the border that runs through many of our communities, wherever we may live. Mizue, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Joe. And thank you, Avi, for sharing your thoughts. That's great. Well, uh, we also have Joseph Nevins, who is an author, activist, uh, as well as associate professor of geography at Vassar College in New York. Uh, Mizue and Joseph together are co-authors, co-producers of a terrific book, text and images that go into the book Dying to Live, a story of U.S. immigration in an age of global apartheid. Joseph, thank you for being with us as well. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Joe. So I thought we could start with a term that's actually, you know, framed in your co-produced book, you and Mizue together. Um, and that is the, your insistence on framing immigration questions within the United States in a global way, right? 
And, and, and I think, you know, even in the way I've introduced the topic uh, today, I mean, I think that, that you might see that limit, right? The, the, the limit often in even progressive left discussions of immigration, that the focus is often on people who are here and, and their demand for rights within the United States, but sometimes to the, you know, to the detriment of not keeping a more global perspective on what the kind of causal reasons are here and what the bigger picture is here. So I wondered if you could both speak a little bit to the importance Maybe, Joe, we could start with you on this. Musea could, could jump in, and then we can talk more about the actual organizing the Immigrant Defense Project is doing. But, Joe, could you talk a little bit about the, the importance of, of viewing immigration in a, in a global uh, context of, of capitalist political economy? Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? And if you wanted also to, to make, I understand you, you have some thoughts about prevailing kind of discourse about immigrant rights struggle, uh, that sometimes is, is, is enabling, but also disabling. So I wonder if you could talk about the importance of a global perspective and perhaps where that leads in terms of how we might see some of our local struggles a little differently. Thank you, those are, those are big questions. And I appreciate big questions. <laughs> this is a time for us to be thinking big. You know, as suggested by Avi, the war on immigrants is a war on the poor. It's a war on the negatively racialized, and it's a war on those at the bottom tiers of the income and wealth pyramids, regionally, nationally, and internationally. And so while what we see in the United States, this is a truism, of course, is, is unique, right? but at the same time, it's part and parcel of processes we see all over the world. And so one way to see this is to look at you know, walls and fences along international borders. When the Berlin Wall fell a little more than 30 years ago, in 1989, right, there were 15 international, there were 15 barriers, walls and fences along international barriers, uh, along international borders throughout the world. Today, according to research by Elizabeth Vallée, who's a, a geographer at the University of Quebec, right, there were at least 77. Right? So the Berlin Wall was supposedly, you know, a watershed moment, and in some ways it was, but, you know, one of you know, a, a, a new world order, we were told, right? A new world of openness. But what we've seen, rather than it being um, ushering in a, a world of openness, right? The coming down of the Berlin Wall was in some ways an anomaly. Right? What we're seeing is an increasing number of, of borders across the world that are heavily militarized and, 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 and policed. Right? And we have to ask ourselves why. And it's inextricably tied to growing inequality across the world. I mean, the biggest predictor, this is based on research done by a couple of uh, political scientists out of UC Berkeley. The biggest predictor of where these border walls will show up is um, it's a function of the disparity in wealth between the country that's building it and the, and the population from where they come from, uh, the disparity between the, the, the sending areas from where the migrants they're trying to stop are coming from. So these are, these are walls of inequality, right? both racialized and classed in various ways. And these, of course, are inextricably tied to capitalism. I mean, it's hardly a coincidence that the people who are illegalized, right, so heavily policed, detained, deported, uh, effectively killed, right, and tens of thousands of people have died in the last, uh, over the last several years across the world, trying to cross from places of insecurity and dispossession, right, to places of security or where wealth is concentrated. Right? It's hardly a coincidence that people who are, who are illegalized, the heavily policed, are coming from countries that were, for the most part, former colonies. And they're heading to places, right, 
who were the which were the colonizers, right? And so we need we have to historicize this process, and and, and these borders and the control of migration and the encouragement of migration is very much tied to empire building. It's also tied to processes of capitalism in really complicated ways, right? That we really you know I, I can't really get into, but let me just highlight sort of two things quickly. First is is that ca as capital penetrates different parts of the world, it disrupts alternative ways of living, creating conditions that often undermine the viability of places for many who live there, while creating connections between countries in which capital is concentrated and countries that are relatively subjugated right, in this process of capitalist transformation, right, thus fueling movement. The second way is that capitalism you know, in many ways of understanding that, one way of understanding capitalism is as a system that's predicated on endless growth and thus on voracious consumption of the environment. The detriments and the benefits of this consumption of nature are unevenly distributed. So what we see, what we tend to see, is that people move or seek to move from, from countries where the bounty of nature, through various unjust processes, has been appropriated or damaged to countries where that bounty has been concentrated. So let's look, for example, at the illegalized migration from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. These three countries are among the, uh, in the world, are among the three most, among the, th um, the, the countries most threatened by climate breakdown. They're also countries whose population on a per capita basis contribute almost nothing to global greenhouse gas emissions that drive climate change. Climate change in the form of intensified drought that we see in the dry corridor that runs through those three countries, um, through the, the growing uh, proliferation of coffee rust, a fungus that destroys the coffee plant on which many rural communities rely, and the growing power of storms is a key factor driving this movement of people. And what we see is the heading to the United States, the country most responsible historically on a per capita basis for climate change, and the country where nature's bounty, nature broadly defined, has been concentrated. In this regard, we might think of these militarized borders as environmental boundaries, as divides in energy usage, for example, fossil fuels being a you know, prime example of that. Just before coming on the show here uh, earlier today, I read that we had the first confirmed death of a detained immigrant at the, the, the notorious now Ote Mesa detention facility, this for-profit immigrant detention center. Uh, and that was a Carlos Ernesto Escobar Mejia, who himself had come to the United States, apparently fleeing the US-fueled civil wars and terror squads of the 1980s. Um, I mean, just, just an acute kind of emblem and, and tragedy of, of the kind of thing you're, you're talking about, right? Where people have come from in the first place, why they've sought refuge in the United States. Um, we also are hearing reports of Trump advocating now for as much as $400 million to be spent to paint the border fence wall black to make it hotter. I don't know if you heard about this today in the Washington Post, to make it harder to climb, more painful to touch. Right? So we have this moment where even as this virus has shown us that, um, that borders themselves will not keep out the flux of a bio, you know, of a biological threat like this, right? That, that viruses attached to the, this global economy of, our, of ours will pass, full, you know, pass, pass through these borders in many different ways, right? Um, you know, businessmen, flights and whatnot. We have like a kind of doubling down on borders, right? As, as, a, as a mode of security. 
Um, Mizue, I, I wonder if we could bring you in at this point. I mean, your work makes clear the border is not just something between Mexico and the United States, but, but a border that runs throughout our communities, including in New York City and in many other cities. Mizue, could you talk, uh, could you lead us through a discussion of, of what you see and hear is going on in New York right now um, related to immigrant communities? Uh, both from a public health standpoint, if you feel that you can speak to that, but in particular from the standpoint of uh, ICE raids and the kind of ongoing kind of war on the poor, if you will, and the, the threats to immigrant secu security, uh, even if we may be thousands of miles from the border per se. I uh, would love to hear, hear what you and uh, what immigrant defense are doing right now. Uh, sure. You know, just to add a little bit to the point that Joe was just talking about in terms of the border is everywhere. You know, one of the things that we really focus on is kind of the institution building around the Department of Homeland Security, right? And I just kind of want to underscore, like to Avi's point, you know, the good immigrant, bad immigrant, kind of who belongs, who doesn't belong is very much part of constructing, right, the settler nation. Um, but what we're experiencing Experiencing right now, uh, especially since, uh, you know, after 9-11 with the founding of the Department of Homeland Security in 2002 is what I often refer to as a permanent state of emergency, right? Where we've had a tremendous diversion of resources uh, from social wel welfare into massive punishment, massive policing, and massive exclusion at, at a rate that's unprecedented in history. And just to give a little bit of a sense of scale on that, um, you know, from the first recorded deportation, I think it was President uh, Cleveland, that is his name, um, through uh, President Clinton, right? The one who signed the very, very harsh 19, the many harsh laws, but the one that uh, particularly impacted kind of our current state of mass detention and deportation were two uh, laws passed in 1996 um, that, you know, did a few things that make mass deportation possible. Um, one of them was made detention and deportation mandatory and a vast, you know, in most cases. Um, it also made it much more difficult for people to adjust to legal status, no matter how long you've been here. Um, it, it, you know, definitely put more resources towards funding the border policing, um, but also it just denied due process across the board to most immigrants. And the, the, the objective of those laws were very clear. We want to make it very difficult for people to enter uh, without authorization, and we want to make it very easy for the government to lock people up and expel them. Um, and so, uh, sorry, so just kind of moving into 9-11, that's when the government got kind of the political will and the infrastructure to basically set up this humongous agency called the Department of Homeland Security. And, you know, just to give you a little bit of scale, when that agency started, when ICE started in 2003, they didn't have teams of ICE officers to go out regularly and, and do ICE raids, right? At that time, I think they just set up, um, I can't remember, sorry, I think it was like eight teams of seven officers across the country, right? And now we're in a moment where there are thousands and thousands of ICE officers um, in multiple different types of um, kind of formations within ICE who can be dispatched at any time to go into cities and different communities to arrest people. Um, and so, you know, what we're just bringing it back to your question around New York City, you know, uh, one of the other pieces uh, that was very critical after the Department of Homeland Security was founded was the federal government uh, very intentionally tried to make local police what they called a force multiplier, right? Um, kind of an extension of the immigration agency uh, 
immigration agency because they said we can't have ICE agents everywhere, but there's police everywhere. Um, and so the other piece that I just wanted to name, because this is just really important, I think, for us all to get our heads around, is that the most people who get into hands of ICE custody actually come through the policing force, right? So if you're arrested, you know, now under Obama, this program of fingerprint sharing really exploded. So every single police precinct in the country now is effectively a, an alert system for ICE, right? Joe's been arrested, his fingerprints are sent, ICE now knows. And, you know, in jurisdictions, uh, I'm sure you guys have heard this term that especially the right wing likes to throw around so-called sanctuary cities, right? Um, you know, these are cities where policies have been passed to try to limit, you know, uh, the police to deportation pipeline, right? Limit um, police from honoring ICE requests to, to turn people over to ICE after they um, are in police custody. And so, you know, part of kind of, sorry, this does come back to New York City. New York City is one of these cities with uh, this type of law. And since uh, the beginning of the Trump administration, but very much clearly since the beginning of this year, 2020, uh, New York City was named as a primary target by ICE. Um, to uh, and naming kind of this these kind of policies of limiting police collaboration as a key reason. And so the way this manifests itself in New York, right, we had uh, the amount of raids from January until kind of the COVID pandemic really took hold uh, was about 400% more than it was at the end of 2019. They had threatened to bring in Border Patrol. I don't know if you guys saw that news in the New York Times that they were going to bring kind of the BORTAC, the Border Patrol SWAT team. They announced kind of, I think it was two weeks before we had our shelter in place, um, that they were doing 24-7, they called it Operation Palladium, 24-7 surveillance of immigrant communities as a way to try to boost their deportation operations. You know, we had... Uh, photos of ICE officers with automatic rifles in the streets in the Bronx, you know, um, knocking on doors. And so I think the, um, that's, I just wanted to lay a little bit of the context in terms of both kind of the political context we're in, but also the scale of ICE policing, uh, which is really tremendous. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for laying that out. Uh, could you, in that context, once you take a sip of water, you know, uh, dig, you know, dig in a little more. I mean, what uh, what are the manifestations uh, of resistance that you're, you know, that you're aware of, and what is your own organization kind of doing uh, uh, right now? I mean, prior to the COVID moment, and and I guess during, you know, during this perhaps complicated moment of COVID, I, I'd like to hear about both the kind of before, the during, and if you have thoughts on after, uh, if it's if it's not too early to think about that. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I feel a little bit like how Avi started. There's so much to say, and it's hard to figure out how to, to unpack it all. But, you know, the one thing I would really like to hone in on is kind of what has really taken hold as a dominant kind of justification for mass deportation and mass ICE policing is this idea of immigrant criminality, right? So just kind of as a notion of illegality really surfaced, I think, in the 70s and 80s as being kind of like, you know, when the government would talk about immigrants, they would often refer to them as the illegal, right? But what happened really during the Obama administration was, I mean, if you guys remember, um, you know, the Bush administration and the Obama administration both had the goal of passing some kind of immigration reform, right? And then I think under Obama, it really shifted away from a very, um, kind of the war on terror language, I feel that Bush kind of embraced a bit more 
um, and kind of the border is out of control language that was under the Bush era. But under Obama, really, that's where ICE interior policing, right, really kind of took hold. And he very much drew on carceral logics, right? Very like well-developed ideas that certain people are a threat forever, right? And so I think this is the moment, and this is really what we're grappling with now, is kind of this notion of the good immigrant, bad immigrant really being kind of overlaid on kind of these very widely held ideas of criminality, right? And punishment uh, and people deserving of punishment. And so, um, sorry, I'm trying to come back to what your original question was. No, sure, no, no, I, I appreciate it, right? I mean, you need okay. to have, know the terrain in order to intervene in it. So yeah. feel free to flesh it out a little more and then, and then come back to what you, know, what you see being done by others uh, from within immigrant communities, what your organization is doing and, and how people can help really and, and get involved. Okay, thank you, now I remember. Sorry, this Zoom stuff format is hard for me. Um, you know, I think part, one of the fault lines is, um, you know, where we really struggle in the immigrant rights movement is this notion of like who's worthy and who's unworthy, right? And I think that, um, you know, in the time of Obama, there was so much organizing on the ground, right? Everybody remembers all the undocumented, unafraid, uh, and there was really like a sense of a possibility. There was a lot of organizing against, you know, police uh, collaboration with ICE, but, um, you know, one thing that I think we still kind of held on to as a, a site that we have to challenge is this idea of who's worthy and who's not worthy along the lines of people with criminal histories, right? And I think that that for, so my organization, Immigrant Defense Project, we fight for the rights of all immigrants. Uh, we don't make that distinction. Um, and I think that, you know, it was interesting under the Trump administration where there was just so much blatant xenophobia and racism and kind of hatred, uh, it did in some ways create somewhat of a political space to kind of engage that narrative. But I do feel like, uh, you know, where some of the challenges that we still face ahead is kind of the point that Joe Nevins was talking about earlier and uh, Avi, I think too, about kind of how the exploitability of this immigrant workforce that we can't quite get to surface ever in the conversation and also how uh, the idea of the border regime as being legitimate, you know, whether it's um, humans policing the border or some kind of drone system or surveillance system, like these are the things that I think uh, we will continue to fight. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I mean, it's, it's so much, I think it's, it's, we want to talk about practice, but I think what you all are reminding us is that there's been so much ideology even within, you know, kind of progressive circles around the question of immigration, that there's really a lot of sifting through, right, and sorting and kind of clarification that needs to happen in order to be effective in, in kind of in whatever kind of interventions that, that, we, uh, that we conceive. So I really appreciate that. I mean, it seems this COVID moment is a real chance to think internationally, right? I mean, Mike Davis and others have said, there's really no way you can have global capitalism, right, without global public health services everywhere. I mean, obviously many of us want to get beyond capitalism per se, right? But many people are saying we need to think beyond borders, even, even if you have a national interest standpoint, right? Because these kinds of dangers of COVID are, you know, are, are, are going to keep coming, right? For, as long as we have this very distorted global economy. So there is this incredible moment, right, of opportunity as well as great danger. I'd like to bring in at this moment Alma de, Je de Jesus, excuse me, Alma, uh, from the organization Affirm, from the Los Angeles branch of Affirm. Affirm is a transnational feminist organization 
that does anti-imperialist as well as feminist organizing, um, building trans-ethnic alliances. And uh, we're so grateful to have a West Coast person with us today. Alma, are you still with us? Yes, I am. I am right here. In Alma, right thank you so much for being with us. Um, you know, we actually originally had one other speaker, uh, and you were going to be a respondent, but I would really like you to, 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 to take the time that you would like to take to tell us how things look on the West Coast right now uh, from your own individual standpoint, uh, as well as from your organization standpoint with the firm. Maybe you could, you could tell us what are you seeing, what are you aware of, and what is your organization actually trying to contribute to um, in terms of supporting immigrant solidarity in this moment? Sure. Um, I would like to first start by saying that I want to change today the way that we talk about immigrant rights. So um, I want to talk about my actual experience as an undocumented woman um, and also as my experience as a woman engaged in pro-immigrant explicitly organi feminist organizing. So I am currently living in Los Angeles, um, Boyle Heights, East LA area to be more specific. And you know, from my experience, I can honestly say that the immigration struggle in the community is more visible now because it has been going on for so many years now, right? Um, nothing has really changed in regards of the immigrant community. I mean, we have suffered state violence even before COVID-19. Rates have not stopped in my community. On April 7th, a 49-year-old Olga Martinez, oh, sorry, Olga Marta, was picked up by ICE from her home in Southeast Los Angeles. In the last two weeks, Olga has been rushed to the hospital as she has high blood pressure. So this is just one of the most recent cases. As mentioned before, detainees are highly vulnerable to infections in facilities such as detention centers. And it's obvious that social isolation is impossible. So many deaths have occurred in the hands of Border Patrol and inhumane facilities. So this is nothing new as others have mentioned right now. Um, so what I'm seeing right now in my community is a lot of fear, anxiety, and mental, mental distress, which is not new for an undocumented immigrant person. Um, I, am on, I have the privilege to be under DACA. So I guess that kind of makes me half documented. <laughs> Um, and I still have to worry because DACA is still in the limbo, right? I still don't know what's going to happen in June, what the decision is going to be, if I'm going to be in danger of losing my job. I really don't know. So that has allowed me, DACA has allowed me to continue working because now as a health worker, I am now considered essential. So I'm still working and that has helped my family. However, I see my family members struggling to feed their families because they do not benefit from a stimulus check um, or unemployment. And so there's a lot of um, distress on not knowing what to do. I, for example, there's also a lot of fear of going to the hospital of health or health centers. My mother itself, she cannot go outside her house right now and she has diabetes and she hasn't followed up in her appointments. Um, so, uh, another example that I have that I have seen a lot in our communities is how a lot of women and children are being affected greatly because they're living in abusive environments. Um, a lot of women and children are forced to stay at home with their abusers, which is something that we have seen in LA and the numbers of domestic violence is increasing day by day. Um, we do have organizations that have started mutual funds for undocumented immigrant communities. 
But unfortunately, not every undocumented person knows how to access these resources or how to even access them, right, to apply for them. They don't have someone to guide them. And so once again, we can see how the, the government is failing us again. Um, my organization of firm, um, I am actually the co-coordinator for our Los Angeles chapter. Um, we as a transnational organization form of women of color for women of color, we have campaigns, um, we have had campaigns against the male order bride industry, trafficking, and most recently we won our, our survival Survivors Not Criminals campaign last year in the LA County. Um, so in our chapter, we, you know, we lead by our own stories. So um, that's what we base our campaigns on. In regards to COVID-19, we are following the lead grassroots organizations like CIA, California Immigrant Youth Justice Alliance. And CIA is just is one of the fewer organizations made of undocumented youth organizers fighting to abolish deten detention centers such as in Adelanto, Los Angeles, and other areas. They're also advocating and organizing so that detainees are allowed to go home to their loved ones, especially during this pandemic because we all deserve to be safe and to be home. The, the women detainees in Mesa Detention Center, for example, have started a strike and this strike started last week just to demand their release so that they can go home. And as mentioned um, earlier today, yesterday we heard about the first dead of an immigrant being, you know, who was detained in detention center and his dead is related to COVID-19. Um, more than 200 people in custody have tested positive for the virus and they're not receiving the proper care. So immigration is one of my um, organization's political work areas, and we follow the lead of our sisters who are affected personally by this, Im this immigration broken system. Um, we as a transnational feminist organization are also making sure to highlight how the COVID-19 pandemic connects to a high increase in number of cases in sex trafficking, domestic violence, especially for undocumented women. We the challenge right now that we see to build power is isolation. This pandemic has put a hold on many campaigns and actions. However, we need to think on how to continue solidarity and continue to organize in new platforms and in new forms because that's very necessary right now. I also believe that the best solidarity right now with the undocumented immigrant community is not only to bring the stories into life, but also to follow their leads. We're not here to save any Anyone, we're here to acknowledge the privilege that we may have to use it to help the most vulnerable to raise their voices. We need to follow the lead towards, we need to follow their lead towards their own liberation, right? Um, last Friday, I was actually present at the street vendor caravan um, in LA, and it was so powerful to be there because it was that caravan, but was organized by the street vendors themselves. And I think that is the, um, a really nice reminder of how we can still build, you know, space for us and we can still build power and solidarity. Um, so let's not, I, I believe it's very important that during COVID-19 and this pandemic, we do not forget that um, women of color are still in the front lines playing different roles, such as being nurses to domestic workers' duties. And we cannot only be visible during, during political agendas or pandemics. We need to be included in the discussions 
and our, our demands need to be heard now because I believe it's time that we as undocumented immigrants and women are, you know, are seen as human beings. And that's what I can, ex I can share with you all. Yeah. No, I mean, thank you so much for saying that. Thank you so much for being here and, 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 you know, and leading in the way that you are at this very moment and, and, and calling out that, that important point. Could I ask you, Alma, uh, to, to kind of picking up from that, that kind of framework to, to perhaps if you highlight if there is a, a story or a voice that you think has not been heard enough or an action that has occurred that you think that needs more amplification. I mean, we really want to use shelter and solidarity uh, to, to amplify what is already being done. Uh, you mentioned this caravan um, through LA, which sounded quite inspiring. Are there other actions that you think, uh, despite the challenge of isolation right now, do start to point a way forward, both in terms of the righteousness of the call, but also the tactics that people are using, right? The creativity that people are mobilizing right now. Um, so what would you want to sh shine a light on right now in terms of actions that have occurred or calls that are that are that are coming out of uh, of communities that you're hearing from yeah um such as a street vendor caravan for example we do have other organizations that are um accepting donations to help for example the car wash campaign um so we have a lot of those restroom organizations that work with domestic workers that are asking for donations we at a firm are, you know, uh, we're highlighting the number of cases specifically um, in domestic violence and sex trafficking right now because we feel that's a, that's very important and we cannot erase that from this pandemic because it has happened so much and it affects a lot of women of color, including transgender women. And so I believe just um, being alert of what grassroots organizations are doing and working towards and being in solidarity with them is very important right now. Because it's not just enough to say, you know, you, uh, the undocumented immigrant community can now go to health centers, not, we, the state will not retaliate against you because there's a lot of mistrust and people are not going out because there's, they have so much fear. So I believe that working towards a solution in this pandemic is important, but also looking forward to another vision of what we really want to see for the undocumented immigrant community. Yeah. And I believe thinking ahead is very important because then we can connect everything, right? The current situation right now and what we want to see in the future. Mizu, uh, actually I'd like to bring in um, everyone to kind of perhaps share some thoughts on this before we open it to the, the broader group that's, that's, that's online with us live. But, but actually sticking with you for one more moment, what is the, the vision that you or that your organization uh, wants to put forward in this moment? You know, that bold positive alternative, right? So often we're talking about confronting, reacting to injustices that are occurring. What is the, the bold sounds like a bold vision that, that you have or that your organization has that can inspire beyond you know, this immediate moment. Yeah, well, we have a, great, a lot of visions, right? Because we all come from different backgrounds. We have more than one story in our organization. I mean, we want to see a world where um, our sisters and our daughters will not have to worry about being kidnapped or trafficked, you know, to, into human trafficking, sex trafficking. Um, we want to see a world without borders. You know, I want to be able to visit my brother who was deported not too long ago. I want to be able to see my grandmas. Um, 
I, we also want a world where healthcare will be easy, accessible for everyone, regardless of immigration status. Um, and also a world where we can envision our own liberation, a world where we, as mothers, can have free childcare and days where we can take off from work because we need to care for our children. Um, so, I mean, the world that we envision, it's, it's where we can all be included and we will not have to worry about me renewing my DACA every two years. Um, a world where my mother will be able to go out of her house without worrying to be detained by ICE. Um, and yeah, I mean, just a world where women bodies will not be used and sold and we will just be able to breathe calmly and feel like a human being. Yeah, that's powerful. I have chills just listening to you. And, and our, our chat box is lighting up with exclamation points as all the people inspired by your words, Alma. Thank you so much for sharing that. I want to point out to people who are listening and watching live or not that we will be directing folks to affirm uh, as well as to IDP, the Immigrant Defense Project, on our Shelter and Solidarity website, our Shelter and Solidarity Facebook page. If one of the producers could actually share those links, if you have them in the chat box right now, we want to do anything we can to help people support you materially, whether that's in the form of donations, whether that's in the form of helping to amplify the stories and the voices and the visions that you and others in your organization and, and communities are, are articulating so, so profoundly. So again, Alma, thank you very much. Uh, and solidarity to you in LA. Um, I'd like to one more time maybe go back to the rest of our guests to take up, if we could, in a, in a kind of concrete way, or at least a concise way, a kind of what is to be done right now. And you could take that either in the sense of like a demand that you think needs to be raised or is being raised that you want to kind of uh, amplify with your time or a specific organizational thing that's going on that people can really plug into and support, something that's more on the concrete side. Um, Avi, could we go to you for something along those lines? We'll go to Avi, to uh, Mizue, to Joe, and then we will open it up to all of you who are, who are joining us live on, um, on Zoom. Uh, Avi? Yeah, so um, I guess to answer that, I wanna reflect back on something that Mizue raised a few minutes ago, and I've just been thinking about it since she was speaking, um, which is about the criminalization of immigrants and this association with, you know, the good immigrants and the bad immigrants. And I'm wondering that if there's something in this moment where, you know, what I was saying earlier about like ripping the veil off of what's going on, that immigrants as workers have really become um, much more visible in our society. And that if this doesn't provide us with one sort of pathway or doorway towards reconceptualizing the whole immigration issue and immigrant rights, um, that the, the role of immigrants as essential workers, um, frontline workers has just been so visible. I, I feel like that uh, maybe is a, a way to hope that, that this is a moment that that has possibilities. Absolutely, I mean, we, we can't deny any longer if we ever could that our lives literally depend on the labor of people who are often criminalized and not even given the right to, to live as, as residents or citizens where they reside. 
Thank you, Avi. Let's go to Mizue. Mizue, do you have something, whether it's an organizational, you want to plug something that IDP is, is, uh, is working on, or how can we support you on that context? Or if it's a broader demand, a broader vision that you think uh, you want to amplify in this moment? Um, so, uh, there's a lot. It's, it's sometimes it's hard when things are so challenging to think of what the alternative could be. Um, but, you know, as you were speaking and as Alma was speaking, and I was thinking about abolition and how we have to think about these are systems that are not broken, right? Or that are, that are not just need to be tweaked, but they need to be abolished because the very purpose, the very reason why borders is, exist is to oppress, right? Um, and so, thinking about how you know one of the calls that actually got picked up a little bit by the mainstream right was abolish ice right and uh under the trump administration and you think about all this like incredible organizing against the pentagon that happened right during the central american wars and a real consciousness kind of about u.s empire and mil and the function of militarism and you know part of the thing that i think we, we can learn from those struggles we can learn from the struggles now abolition of prisons is like almost in the mainstream, right? People think about that. Uh, that's because of a lot of organizing that's happened over decades of, you know, work uh, like organizations like Critical Resistance or, you know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. And I think that it's just, this is a moment for imagining, like really identifying what are the structures that oppress, why do they exist, right? And how is it that we start this real process of dismantling, which is really breaking down, I think, this idea of good versus bad, right? A system that's broken. No, it's a system that's corrupt and designed to oppress and really kind of linking it to histories of colonialism and imperialism like Joe talked about, right? So it's a lot, right. but I think it's kind of a moment to really take a stake of like, how did we get mm -hmm. here? How did it become so horrible in the past 20 years? But what are the, you know, the hard conversations and the hard kind of organizing and reconfiguring we need to do to get us to the... Yeah. To the state. Yeah, and to shift in a way from a calling to reform a system as if it's broken to abolishing a system that is designed to do exactly the kind of oppression it's it's doing. That's very powerful. Uh, Joe, we'll give you uh, the last word from the guest panel here, and then we'll kick it to the broader group. Uh, if you would like to speak, uh, you you feel free to send a note to the to the group or to me so that we know who who wants to speak, and we can call on you in an orderly fashion and demute your microphone. Uh, Joe, let's uh, give us one more comment before we go to the group. If you're there. Sorry, I forgot to That's unmute a, myself. Okay. We only see you when you speak. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you speak and you're visible. Something that Avi said made me think of an opinion piece that was in the New York Times yesterday by Alfredo Corchado, who's a journalist with the Dallas Morning News, and it was entitled, A Former Farm Worker on American Hypocrisy. And as was suggested by Alma in her comments was that what we're finding now is that people who are you know, officially illegal or undocumented are also because of the types of work that the type of work that they do are being also defined as essential workers now. And so a lot of farm workers actually have letters from the Department of Homeland Security that, it, that says, you know, if local authorities stop them, this is an essential worker. And so what Corchado and this I forget how Avi put it, but like sort of unveiling the process of, you know, of, of exploitation. This is what Corchado is saying is that an unveiling is taking place. It's exposing just how profoundly hypocritical uh, the political economic system is. Right? And so his demand 
which is a relatively modest one, but still a big one in, in this context, is that all, all these workers who are defined as essential, right, but who happen to be undocumented, should receive uh, citizen, full citizenship rights. Right? So that, that's something I think, uh, agitational demand, that one, is something we should embrace. I think we should also embrace the demand that all people in immigrant detention uh, should be released. Mm -hmm. right? uh, this was something that even we see people in Congress uh, supporting in varying ways. Right, because of the threat they face in a time of coronavirus. And well beyond that, I mean, ultimately, as Mazzoi was suggesting, we need to take inspiration from abolitionist movements historically. Uh, Alma said something similar when she said that, you know, when you asked her about her vision, right, that she said, we, we have a vision of a world in which people have freedom of movement, people have freedom of residence, people have freedom of, to work where they want, right, to live without fear. Um, this is the world I think we need to fight for, and this is a struggle, obviously, that we can't limit to the United States, but needs to take place in the United States, but also needs to be one uh, uh, that takes place globally and thus requires, necessitates a, a truly global solidarity. So I'll just yeah, no, that's powerful, Joe, mm -hmm. and I mean, I think our, our conversation has gotten so deep, I think it's also very important to return to the acuteness of the immediacy of the, the suffering and the, the vulnerability right now. We have, what, 2,000 or more people in the Ote Mesa, Mesa Detention Center alone, just one privately owned for-profit detention center, 2,000 plus that have tested positive for COVID. And, be, and, and essentially saying they're being given nothing but like cold medication in many cases, right? So, I mean, the, the, the need is acute. And I think uh, to focus on the, the immediate, but also deepening things, thinking globally and historically is, is the challenge. And I, I really appreciate you all, all the guests today, for helping us to think in that way uh, or start thinking in that way if we weren't already. Okay, let's go to some of the folks that are on the call, on the Zoom call. It looks like I have uh, Mike, Mike uh, Heikman. You wanna talk about uh, Boston Public Schools? Uh, Mike, can we demute Mike? Mike, you wanna ask a question? Uh, not a question, just wanna share what's going on. Okay. Uh, uh, in, in Boston, uh, the, the, we discovered a while back that uh, what was happening in the schools, like uh, a, a fight, you know, among students, would be reported to uh, the uh, police after school. They would be employed by the Boston Public Schools, and this information would go from place to place and eventually to ICE. Uh, and this happened on numerous occasions and led to the deportation of one youth. Um, there's, uh, this was uh, discovered uh, and there was a lawsuit uncovering uh, the, this collaboration. And um, uh, there's a strong alliance between the student immigration movement and unafraid educators which is a committee of the Boston Teachers Union. And I think that's significant that uh, uh, the Boston Teachers Union, would it's a committee, but a strong support from the leadership and membership of the union is working together with the student immigration movement with resistance from the school department to uh, come up with a, a policy that would protect our students. Um, and for those of you who live in Boston, as, a, as an action, the next meeting of the Boston School Committee is going to be Wednesday, May 13th, I believe starting at 5 p.m. Uh, I plan on uh, testifying uh, for the fourth time on this and uh, some other issues 
Uh, if you go to the website, you could find out uh, how you can uh, testify if you wish or attend the Zoom meeting. Thank you very much, Mike. I think you flag a very important question. What can uh, people do locally, but what can unions in themselves, teacher unions as a member of the MTA, local faculty staff union at UMass Boston, I think it's something we need to think about. Other folks on this call may be members of unions. What can and what are unions doing or not doing to support uh, immigrant workers and immigrants struggling and being targeted in, in these ways, including our own students? So thank you for that, uh, Mike. Could we take another comment uh, from, from the group? And then we will go back to the, the guests one more time, but maybe take a couple. Uh, I see uh, we have uh, John Mayerhofer, my, my, my friend John Mayerhofer on the line. I'm not see seeing anybody else jumping up in line at the moment. Uh, John, you, I'm sure you have a comment. Would you like to share? Um, yeah, thank you very much for these presentations and, and discussions. really interesting and important. Um, no, I really, I was along the same lines as the, the, the last speaker. Um, you know, what, what um, sort of radical strategies do you see in sort of uniting, um, you know, migrant workers and, 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 you know, sort of native workers, right? Um, you know, sort of moving, even moving beyond just simply um, some sort of solidarity, but actually kind of building some sort of anti-capitalist uh, and fundamentally anti-racist sort of struggle. Um, and I mean, that's brewing, I think, in, in, in unions, for example, in City University of New York and other unions and so forth. Um, but it, it hasn't been sort of developed. And so I'm just curious what, what your thoughts are about, about something like that. Okay. Um, I would like to direct that to some of the folks that have been doing some frontline organizing. Uh, so, I mean, Alma, I don't want to put anyone on the spot. It's a big question for all of us, but especially for those most involved in this organizing. Uh, Mizue, uh, Alma, uh, or Joe or Avi, uh, would you like to would you like to feel John's question? What are some of the strategies that that hold uh, hope of uniting kind of U.S. born and non-U.S. born workers in the context of this moment, and and particularly how that of that organizing uh, the possibility of strategies that unite would. You, Thoughts on I this? I think that um, one of the things that I have seen throughout my experience is to see that the, even within the immigrant movement, there's a lot of division. Mm -hmm. And so I think like right now, a lot of um, anti-immigrants take, you know, take that to their advantage. Like there are so many organizations that people don't really know who to follow. Um, I think that right now, like was mentioned before, and I forgot which speaker they were talking about what the, the whole concept of the good immigrant and the bad immigrant or who deserves to stay, who doesn't deserve to stay. And I think taking our minds out of that is very important because I have been, you know, undocumented for 20 something years because I came here when I was six years old. However, as a student, I don't think I only deserve to live without fear in this country but my parents also deserve that. You know, the street vendors deserve that. And so I think that, um, I just wanna mention that there's still a lot, a lot of work to do. And so it's important to highlight those parts so that we can then move forward. Yeah, I think that's a very important point, right? That there are divisions and fragmentations even among immigrant communities themselves, not only between immigrants and, and uh, native born, right? I think that's, 
that deepens the problem. Uh, Mizue, would you like to speak to, to John's question or, or to what Alma just said? Yeah, you know, I think that it's really true to Alma's point. Like, I think one of the successes or things capitalism is really good at is dividing uh, workers. But I do think that, you know, they're, uh, you know, it's important to kind of take stock of where there has been progress. When I, I started my work back in the 90s in Los Angeles um, at a time when undocumented workers were mm -hmm. taking the streets. I don't know if you guys remember, right? the Justice Janitors campaign, and they were getting uh, beat up regularly by the LAPD. I mean, it was just like a very striking image of these, you know, a peaceful protest of mostly Central American Mexican workers just being like uh, bludgeoned by the LAPD, just uh, trying to organize for their rights. And it was a really interesting moment because part of what the union movement you may, you may or may not know, people may or may not know, is up until that time, there was a lot of resistance from organized labor of organizing undocumented workers, right? Because it was very much like nativist or, you know, we need to keep uh, U.S. jobs and uh, very much along the lines of citizenship. And so it was like a really interesting moment where people, uh, it was really a challenge, I think, internally to the labor movement to basically say these are all workers, these are all people who are exploit exploited, and you know, it was a very conscious decision within some of those organizations to to kind of uh, make those alliances really clear amongst some of the um, the citizen, you know, uh, non-immigrant workers, and and not, um, you know, I think one of the challenges, just to be honest, from my perspective, is I think that a lot of the the labor movement has weakly as the U.S. economy has shifted, but where you are seeing really, you know, I kind of like Mike's experience, example of the teachers unions, because I think those are some of the most, you know, progressive forces of organizing. And, you know, in our experience in New York as well, because it's such a huge immigrant population, uh, you know, it's been really interesting to see kind of sites of, you know, teachers organizing alongside with parents and students. Um, for their rights. Um, but, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the landscape of organizing around workers' rights, kind of like what Alma was referencing, is, is much more, I feel like, fluid and nuanced than it used to be in the 90s. I think there's like a lot of really interesting organizing going on between like trans, you know, transgender organizing linking up with kind of decriminalization of um, LGBTQ youth who are targeted very frequently by the NYPD. Um, and so I think maybe to your point question, John, I feel like it's not really my area of expertise, so I don't want to speak to it too much, but I think what we're seeing is kind of a, a rethinking of what traditionally was thought of as like a worker and worker organizing um, as being uh, these struggles that are very much linked to like I was saying decriminalization or kind of like a broader set of rights for immigrants yeah. and other people of color. I mean, there still is that old, old time uh, saying about injury to one, injury to all, right? I mean, to the extent we can get U.S. born workers and people, you know, to actually conceive of attacks on immigrants as attacks on them as well, in, at least in some broader sense, right? That we're all, that our humanity is all vulnerable. When anyone's violated, you know, we're all violated. I mean, I, we have a long way to go to have a labor movement here that and uh, you know that really embodies that spirit, but I think some of us are pushing for it where we can. Um, I know in my union, I'm, we're trying to push for for some of that on on various levels. Um, Avi, I saw you signaling. You want to speak to that as well, uh, and then uh, yeah, and then maybe we'll get uh, closing comments and uh, and we'll and we'll wrap up unless we have another uh, question um, from the group. So maybe this can be my closing. 
and comment too, um, because I was just thinking about a lot of things as this conversation has been going on. Um, another interesting thing I think about this moment is even before coronavirus has sort of upended things and forced so many people, I think, to rethink and see things that they hadn't seen before. But I feel like um, the Bernie Sanders campaign um, and all of the organizing that went along with it, of course, uh, brought some issues into the forefront and has that has brought them into the mainstream um, that have really widespread popularity among the population. Things like um, a real national health care, public national health care system, um, free higher education and student debt, a Green New Deal, um, and the idea that no human being is illegal. Um, I think that that there are some really strong issues that have very broad public support now. And I want to connect that to the question of unions, because again, just picking up on what Mizue was saying, um, this sort of shift in the unions maybe a couple of decades ago uh, towards recognizing that the future of unions is immigrant workers. That is, if if unions cannot immigrant workers at the forefront, there are going to be no unions. Um, they're just going to be a dying breed here. But I feel like in the last maybe five years, unions have taken even yet another significant step forward with this idea of bargaining for the common good and what you mentioned of um, teachers uniting with parents. Um, that that especially in the public sector, but also in the health sector, that what unions are fighting for is not just the narrow interests of their members, but for policies that are really um, for, the, for the common good and that communities can mobilize around because things like decent public education and decent public transportation, those, those are the common good. Um, so, so I sort of see a conjuncture here in um, what's happening with the union movement, uh, what was happening before coronavirus and the particular pandemic crisis that we're in, in terms of workers that uh, could hold promise. Absolutely. I think, and I think there's a real conceptual link between that notion of bargaining for the common good and something that, that Alma was saying before too, which is to say the importance of people who have some protection, some documentation, actually leveraging that to struggle in solidarity with others, not simply making a separate piece, right? As tantalizing as America makes that for people, right? Same, you could, same thing could be said about the labor movement, a labor movement that only conceives of its own contract is for its own members good, is not only, you know, betraying ethically or politically its broader mission, but, but is also uh, uh, maybe uh, not have a future at all as it gets more and more isolated. In that sense, uh, you know, it, we, we're almost forced, compelled to become this more robust uh, international and anti-racist uh, movement. We, should, we need to become it. Uh, final comments. Anyone have a brief final comment? Uh, Joe and Mizue, and back to Alma. Maybe give Alma the last word here, uh, and then I will thank our sponsors and, and wrap things up. Joe, you have anything? Um, I can just say something. Sorry, I can Mizue. say something. Sorry, and then Joe, you can go. Um, I just wanted to wrap up a point that I forgot to finish about Glover, Grover Cleveland to Clinton. And just, you know, the point I want to make is we are in an abnormal historical moment, right? So from that time period, from Cleveland to Clinton, there were like 2 million people deported total, right? George Bush, 
uh, in his presidency deported more than 2 million, Obama more than 3 million. And I think that, you know, I just basically like part of the work that we struggle with is like, obviously all of us here, I think, are here because we care and we're trying to understand how to challenge the systems uh, that oppress people, the people we love and, and kind of, you know, the communities we fight for. And I think that, you know, part of uh, our struggle, honestly, is that the system has grown so tremendously, right? The, the kind of infrastructure to target and surveil and arrest and lock up immigrants to fortify the border, keep people out, is at a scale that was unimaginable, right, in the 1990s. And so it hasn't been that long of a historical period, honestly, that this uh, deportation apparatus has grown, but it's not just physical, it's material and it's ideological. And I think just kind of back to abolish ICE, to me, it's kind of a call both, it's a, a practical thing, how do we physically dismantle this, kind of get the budget back uh, away from punishment and militarization towards, you know, serving, uh, true needs of people, um, but then also break down the ideological kind of fortification of it, which is really basically this idea that certain people belong here, other people don't, and that, you know, certain people are like perpetually forever exploitable and could be punished and disposable. And so those are the things that I think we're going to grapple with whoever ends up as the next president. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, there's a lot of great spaces to do organizing and think about, but I think just, I just want to say our ideological work is really important. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, absolutely, Mizue. Uh, Joe, closing thought, and then Alma, final word before we wrap up. If you'd like to take it. Yeah, this is, it's, this is a very scary time, right? It's a very, very scary time. Um, you know, what, about 74,000 deaths in the United States alone, and that's a conservative estimate, right? Uh, well over the number of U.S. soldiers that were killed during the Vietnam War, already during this, this pandemic, right? Um, and at the same time, um, this is, a, this is a, a great opportunity, right? And um, partly, like, going back to Avi's point about the, the Bernie Sanders campaign, that opened up, and it wasn't just the Bernie Sanders campaign, but you know, that was in some ways the crystallization of, of, of various trajectories coming together. But just in the last month, like the New York Times wrote an editorial, so this is the opinion of the editorial board, that read like it could have been written by Bernie Sanders' campaign. The Financial Times has had, a, had an editorial a few weeks ago where it talked about the excesses of capitalism. So here we have within the ruling class, right, we're seeing movements, we're seeing cracks, right? Cracks that we need to exploit. And more than ever, given the sadness and the tragedy that's unfolding, uh, and then, you know, to think about things like climate change and all the ravages associated with that, more than ever, we need radical visions and a willingness to, to struggle to realize those visions. So, you know, as they, the old saying, I mean, you said, uh, what, an injury to one is an injury for all, so I'll give you another uh, old saying, don't mourn, organize. More than ever, we need to organize. So I'll stop there. Yeah, thank you for that, Joe. That's 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 a good one as well. Alma, we'll give you the last word before we before we close. Well, thank you for allowing me to bring my transnational feminist view into this conversation. I believe that it's very important um, because speaking from my own experience, it means a lot to share that um, stories and being part of the conversation because I believe it's very important right now. Right, we need to bring the folks that are the most vulnerable and the ones that are being affected so that we can find a proper solution 
right? We cannot find solutions without bringing them in, into the discussion. And I believe that transnational feminist vision right now is very important because we come from, we have so many different stories. We have all been affected by state violence in so many different ways. Our grandmothers have also. So thank you so much. And I really look forward to continue to create a vision and working towards liberation with all of you, having, having you all in solidarity with our work at Affirm. Thank you. It's sending you solidarity right back. Thank you all for taking the time to be here and taking the energy to be here and, and getting an internet connection that works so you can be here. Um, you know, it's really been great hearing you all today. And I want to point again, your organizational links. If you have concrete ways that we can support you, uh, we'll, we'll do it on Facebook. We'll do it on our website. We'll do it on our email. Uh, that goes out every week to people about the last show and the next show. So please give us those resources and we want to do whatever we can to keep these useful conversations going, but also to put our money uh, and our bodies where our mouth is uh, to support the good work that's being done and, and address the needs that are emerging. Uh, so we're going to wrap up Shelter and Solidarity number five right here. I'd like to thank all of you who are here online live with us, those who are watching on Facebook, those who are watching later on YouTube, especially our guests, Avi Chomsky, Joe Nevins, Mizue Azeki, Mizue Azeki, and Alma de Jesus. Uh, thank you all, all who are here today for your great perspectives. A special thanks to my co-producers, Saran Mudliar and Tim Sheard, and to our sponsoring organizations, Labor Press, Hardball Press, the publisher of great working class stories. Uh, in fact, maybe Hardball Press could help publish some of these stories that are coming out of your, your various organizations work, uh, Alma and, and uh, Mizue and others. Also Encuentro Cinco here in Boston, a hub for organizing in, in, in the greater Boston area, and the journal Socialism and Democracy, um, which is also a, a sponsor of the program. And then uh, Matt Callahan, our comrade at, at, at S&D, has written the song Shelter, which didn't play earlier, but maybe it's going to play any moment here. Uh, tune in next week. We're going to shift our time to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in solidarity with our West Coast uh, kin out there. That'll be 7 p.m. And we're going to have our first Shelter and Solidarity social roundtable where we're going to welcome you all to join us in sharing what you have learned from the books that you've been reading during quarantine. What have you been reading? What have you been learning that seems of interest to others? What's the most urgent thing you've read, the most uh, joyous, righteous thing you've read in the last two months, assuming you've had time to do that? So join us 7 p.m. next Thursday, and we'll get into it, brief from us, and then we'll turn it over to you for a roundtable. Um, we are uh, here at Shelter and Solidarity, and I just want to close with our with our with our three phrases, which is stay safe, stay engaged, and stay together. See you next week.